Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Brendan here with Mark, episode 305. Thursday, July the 27th, 2023. Episode 305, Mark. Gee, they fly past, don't they? I, I was thinking that's wrong. It's only, we've only just done the 300th. But there we go, 305. How are you, Mark? I'm great, Brendan. Really, really good. It's a bit hot up here at the moment. There's some thunderstorms. Oh, just stop it. Stop <laughs> it. Stop uh, it. We're I'll stop rugged right up and there. we've. I'm I'm wearing my dressing gown around the <laughs> house these days, you know, even with that. We don't want to put the heater on because it's gas and the cost of gas heating in Australia has skyrocketed. So, yes. <sighs> Apart from that, Mark, I'm well. I'm well. Um, thanks for not asking. And things work interesting, um, you know, up and down, up and down. Um, some busy days. Um Interesting day surgery the other day. Um, one of the surgeries cancelled. Guinea pig desexing. Their dog ate the guinea pig, so um, that one didn't come in, Mark. So um, although the dog probably didn't need a feed that night. Um, so yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? What happens? Um, it, there's always something new, isn't there? Whether it's an animal being eaten by another animal or a client that just completely wrong foots you um, with with some comment and. That's what we live for, don't we? <laughs> you reckon, uh, one of the things that I, you know, uh, what a hater I am of all things social media. And one of the negatives I think of social media is that it artificially gives the impression that, you know, all animals live in peace and harmony. Um, and so very often people will, not that I'm saying your clients did this, but, um, but people will often let their prey and predator animals cavort together with disastrous consequences so um so i hope um gee how many yeah how many you're saying it's a dog eat guinea pig world out there isn't it um how many clients have rabbits and they say oh yeah he, he she plays with the cat all the time or the dog and and i just you know, try not to roll my eyes and I say perhaps supervise them at least every second that they are together because all it takes is one chomp from that cat um, to be rabbit dead and one chomp from that dog to be rabbit dinner. Uh, but having said that, it is fairly rare, isn't it, that those um, clients who do have their prey species cavort in with the non-prey species that um, we have a have a absolute disaster. Have you seen many of them? Yeah, I've seen a few. But the thing that, the other factor that worries me is that uh, like the absolute disaster ones are clearly a problem. And once again, I emphasize I'm not having a go at your client. Um, but uh, the other um, the other um, problem is the, um, the general stress, like a rabbit sitting next to a, I've got a, a a client sent me a wonderful photo of a, a beautiful black and white rabbit that had the same pattern as a black and white dog and they were sort of curled up together. But the rabbit's body language was, oh my 
goodness, I'm about to be eaten by this similarly coloured animal. <laughs> Grimace stage 10. <laughs> exactly. um, yes. um, and the, the yeah. rabbit survived the experience, but I do worry about the constant uh, adrenaline and Stress. cortisol levels yes. Yes. and yes. how that affects their general health. I see where you're coming from there, Mark. Yes, it's, you know, in my classic there is the, you know, the bearded dragon that even though it's not a particularly a prey species, but the bearded dragon that sat on the shoulder. He loves watching telly with me. He loves going down to the supermarket with me. He loves watching the football with me. Um, well, he's probably just sat there absolutely terrified. Um, <laughs> he's trying to pretend. He thinks you're a Maybe tree. Maybe he's enjoying it. And he's trying to pretend yes. he's a branch <laughs> so no one can see him. Yes, yes. So there we go, Mark. That's um, <laughs> a bit off on a bit of a tangent there already. But, yeah, um, I think some good points there about that. If you have any similar stories, send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com. I have your client pet or pet-pet interactions with the unusual pets and uh, – We'll give you a shout-out on the program. And a quick shout-out to our three main sponsors, Mark, we haven't done for a couple of episodes, Specialised Animal Nutrition, Chemical Essentials, and Microchips Australia. Very, very thankful for them. We love them and we appreciate them so much. And uh, and it's easy to do, Brendan, because their products are so good. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, I've I've got a couple of reviews on the back burner, Mark. Um, that they're slow burners, um, and I will review at least one of them within the next month. I promise. Uh, it's, it's taking a while, and you'll know why once I review them. Uh, apart from that, um, no reviews, Mark. Do you have any other reviews? No, no. I think I'd currently have the last couple of weeks. No reviews. Um, but um, yep. like you, I have one that. Um... Well, I'll commit to next week. I'll make that review, and then you're got you're you're up. You're okay, up the week I'll, after. I'll, I'll yeah, keep me to that. If not, I'll I'll find something. <laughs> I will find something. Okay, Mark. I think with that, we have a couple of interesting news stories. I might take mine first. You found both of these, and they're both a little bit potentially a little bit depressing yeah, there, I, Mark, but yeah, uh, controversial. Um, and the first one's reported from VIN, uh, the VIN News Service, Mark, and the headline is Australia and New Zealand Veterinary Schools are near crisis in, in um, quote marks. One of eight schools faces a real prospect of closure, according to, and it's based on the 86-page review which was commissioned by the Veterinary Schools of Australia and New Zealand, which represents the heads of the veterinary schools here in Australia and New Zealand, and prepared by a panel, and they went through 69 written submissions, Mark, and not surprisingly, they called for an urgent increase in government funding to plug what's seen as unsustainable gap between the school's income and cost. And as, as we all know, the veterinary schools, it's quite expensive putting vet students through. And um, during these hard times, um, there's there's a lot, there's so much politics in this, isn't <laughs> there? there? Is. But, um, but, but between different faculties and, and universities as well. And But according to the report, and they didn't state which particular university it was or veterinary school it was mark at least one veterinary school faces a real prospect of closure the report says without naming the school and my alma mater mark university of melbourne um denied it was them and they also 
in the report it talks about the um, the university in in the news report um, Melbourne Uni struggling when it closed its teaching hospital and it leased the teaching hospital out um, to a corporate body, um, Green Cross here in Australia, and uh, they are stating that it has improved caseload for learning experience for students there, Mark. Gee, there's, there's a lot here, but what, what's your... What's your summary of this, Mark? I'll, I'll give you five minutes, Max. <laughs> I won't need five minutes. The take-home uh, message that I think I wanted to make sure all our listeners, particularly those in Australia, are aware of is that there are a, there is a lot of thought going into this, and and a lot of um, a lot of really really smart people are putting a lot of effort into dealing with it. I don't think, while um, any uh, veterinary school is uh, you know, they, they really work year to year and um, they're not accumulating, at least in Australia, not accumulating uh, huge reserves that they can um, they can depend on for years and years into the future. So all of them are financially vulnerable. And here in Australia, we've, um, you know, the vet students are the most expensive students to train um, and uh, the COVID taking away a lot of the fee-paying uh, international students has really put a lot of pressure all of a sudden um, on the major financial, one of the significant financial inputs into the veterinary school. So it was always going to be a time where they they, they had to um, advocate for more money. Um, it costs a lot. And if, uh, if the universities and uh, society at large wants quality veterinarians, they're going to have to uh, um, put their money where their mouth is and, and fund the vet schools a little bit better. But I just wanted this news to be there so that people were aware that um, that uh, these things are being considered and um, great minds are making plans, Brendan. Great minds, Mark. That's what we need. And let's hope that they, let's hope that um, they all get more funding. It's always been, it's always been there, hasn't it, on the horizon for many, many years, but it it's come to a head in the last five or ten, hasn't it? Definitely. Um, your story is not unrelated, is no, it? No, it's not unrelated. It sort of follows um, a little bit of a pattern. The The story I wanted to relate was the New South Wales, the state uh, where I'm registered as a veterinarian. Um, the state government has begun an inquiry into the veterinary workforce mm. shortage. And at first I was a little bit worried that because I know there are a number of um, our professional association here in Australia. Um, some international uh, work is being done, and uh, and I know the Veterinary Boards Council has a sustainable practice committee that's working on aspects of the workforce shortage. And I was worried that this might this inquiry might fracture that uh, effort splinter it into less effective groups. Um, but, um, but I'm pleased to report that uh, the outstanding submissions from our AVA um, and from the veterinary boards, I think that will sharpen the, um, the minds of the committee involved in the inquiry. And, and I'm very hopeful that, uh, that their interest um, uh, will result in some aspects um, there's some interesting proposals, Brendan. I was going to point just one of the the uh, thoughts that went uh, that uh, was made as a submission to the inquiry that um, maybe there was some yes. hex relief for 
veterinarians who remained in rural practice while they were in rural and remote practice that uh, that there was some uh, hex relief. I, I, I hope I'm correct in saying that such a system exists at the moment in the medical profession um, and it might be a good thing if it was extended to the veterinary profession. What do you think? I agree. <laughs> good word. Um, I agree, Matt. It's... <sighs> but it's good that, that um, these the bodies with power, um, things like the New South Wales government, the registration bodies, AVBC and our AVA are, um, uh, you know, turning their mind to these problems. Um, and hopefully the outcome will be that we'll, we'll see less stress in the veterinary profession, um, make it more sustainable and uh, have people remain in the profession for longer. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's good at least that, um, that things are, Oh, it's a start, a start. Mark. exactly the word I yes. was looking for. It's a start. We and you just hope that, like the other report we were just talking about, um, that they're not just you know spitting out reports and then it just sits and that's it. Um, but that action is taken, Mark, is what we need. Um, on we don't things. need another talk fest, do we? We've got enough yes. of that here on this uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. And speaking of, Mark, let's jump into the main topic yes. before everybody is um, put to sleep. And that is, and I think this might end up being the first part of several parts because it's a, I think it's an interesting topic. It is respiratory diseases in birds, Mark. Um, gee, it is a huge topic, isn't it? So I think what we will do, we will, we will, section it off in two little parcels mark and this week we'll cover cover well the initial parts of it the the signs of um respiratory disease that we see with these birds presented with these problems um and then perhaps even stepping back before that talking about a little bit about the anatomy of the the avian respiratory system mark and then if we have time today if not we'll cover it next week um the start of the workup, Mark, for these cases. And then the following podcast or two, we will cover the treatment aspects of it and, and prevention as well, Mark. So we've got a lot to cover. So let's jump in. Maybe we go with the anatomy first, Mark. Do you want to walk us through the respiratory tract and respiratory system of birds? Good call, Brendan. Um, yes, I do. Um, I, uh, you know, I think most of us are aware. I'm glad you said you not know. <laughs> Most of us a very short podcast. <laughs> most of us are aware of the um you know the upper respiratory tract, the nares, the nasal cavity coming down into the pharynx and the glottis, uh, the long, often uh, curved uh, uh, trachea that um, you know in many species will flex quite significantly, um, reaches the syrinx. So our mammalian voice box um, the larynx is divided into uh, the glottis at the top of the trachea and the syrinx at the bifurcation at the bottom of the trachea um, and of course the lungs uh, without a diaphragm fixed to the body wall um, and and the the air sacs we all are fascinated by the air sacs of birds um, and uh, and that unique uh, that unique anatomy allows for the unidirectional flow of, um, of air, um, allowing the absorption of oxygen to be so efficient that it allows a high metabolic rate, which, you know, is a critical thing for flight, that high metabolic rate. And of course, 
an extensive uh, system, a respiratory system, means that significant parts of the bird in the bones, all the air sacs through the uh, coelom, the abdomen and thorax, um, make the bird much lighter, another significant adaptation to flight. But the key thing here, this anatomy, um, yes. is that it's complicated, Brendan. Um, it's not a simple, you know, our lungs in mammals, I always maintain a relatively uh, simple structures blocked off in a diaphragm, in and out, in and out. They have some finer detail, which we're not going to go into here at the moment, but um, they're simple structures, whereas the convoluted um, many... Uh, unidirectional parts of the bird's respiratory system allows for a whole array of additional complications to pathology in the respiratory tract. So very important to be aware of all those anatomic differences. Yes, it's a hell of a lot different is my summary, Mark, <laughs> compared with uh, mammals certainly and and. Um, also with reptiles, although there are occasional similarities there. But um, it's a lot to deal with. And I think there's, we should leave it at that as far as the anatomy summary because we could spend a few podcasts talking about the, 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 the nitty-gritty of the anatomy. So when, when the anatomy reflects on these diseases, Mark, or highlight the, the different anatomical structures, I think, and how that... How that um, plays into the diseases we have here that, that which one i'd like to ask you about off the top <laughs> i love the way notice, you this, mark without notice is you talked about the nares there mark um, how does where do those little sinuses um sit in um with those nares there because um you know we may struggle to differentiate a a true respiratory disease process in a bird with a sinusitis um, and uh, even beyond that, um, ocular disease, because those uh, the air flows into the nasal cavity, but there are little openings in the nasal cavity which uh, extend to quite expansive uh, air-filled structures uh, all through the skull, down through the the uh, the neck. Um, and those sinuses, the interesting thing about them is that they are easily blocked off, and so it would not be an unusual occurrence for us to have someone bring in a, a, a bird that has a, in inverted commas, swollen eye, only for us to find that, um, that the eye is completely normal, but pushed out by um, air sacs that sit in that retrobulbar space. Um, and, yeah. and sometimes working with the respiratory tract is the way to solve what is presented as an ocular problem. Yes, it's a it's a challenge, isn't it? Um, trying to narrow things down with without knowing a bit more of that anatomy, Mark. Um, what is there any particular resources, textbooks? <laughs> I was about to say. I was about to say one of the real um, uh, what's the, it's it's almost, they are almost a um, uh, antique now. Um, but um, an oh, old yes, textbook, your favorite. an old textbook, Harrison, Harrison and Ritchie, um, uh, avian medicine and surgical tech. I can't remember the name of the actual book, yep. but it had acetates, Brendan, beautiful acetates, yes. books with acetates. There should be more of it, in my opinion. And, um, and one <laughs> particular set of acetates, I remember them 
distinctly because of the uh, bright blue in the artwork. Um, they had taken a number of species of white cockatoo, umbrella and sulphur crested, and they had injected expending plastics into the sinuses, then dissolved the birds in, in a, I suppose it was acid, leaving a beautiful blue sculpture of the, the, uh, the sinus spaces. And those sinus spaces were then drawn onto the acetate. But the reason I love those uh, drawings is because they were one of the excellent tools um, for explaining what's going on to clients. That visual appreciation of the sinuses and how the acetate allowed you to overlay them on the skeleton and show exactly where they were um, was an excellent tool for explaining um, explaining the I process. remember that text very well. Very hefty tome wasn't it it's a very big um volume um but it was just one part one one yes one volume wasn't it and i think i've still got it somewhere in my um little shed <laughs> my <laughs> office we'll carve out the acetates um, and hang on to those and anyone who can get onto ebay and and uh f- find an old antique copy i would buy it for just the acetates otherwise the other the other classic text mark that i thought you might have been men- about to mention is papesco yes um, and the classic anatomical um, um you're just, diagrams you're just trying to get many all species. the gigantic textbooks you can think of them all <laughs> substitute for well, weightlifting. that's another one that uh i think i might have a an electronic copy ah. of Pesco that I used at one stage um, for various things, um, um, lectures and things. Um, it It's another one that if you try and come across a copy in a secondhand bookstore, grab it because they're incredibly expensive these days, aren't they? The, uh, the other thing I'd say, while they're useful for explaining the anatomy to clients, I also found those uh, those books that had visual demonstrations of layers of internal anatomy, very useful for um, for looking at diagnostic imaging as well. There's obviously beautiful texts now which have radiographs with outlines over them, but having then a separate picture of the structures that you see um, is useful yep. in my mind for, for visualising changes in pathology. Yes, and I think there are a few of the more current, I suppose we'd say, textbooks that also have um, some nice diagrams in them as well, Mark. Um, the are Avian you pointing out how, surgery how <laughs> out of date my... <laughs> no, no, no. We've gone down a little rabbit hole here, Mark, but yes, I wanted to point out that um, we really need to have access to um, ideally some visual ones, um, um structures of that anatomy there because it is as you mentioned complex so when we're talking about all those different things the sx the lungs the syrinx the complete tracheal rings etc so let's jump into the next bit of it mark so anatomy as i said we might spend a little bit of time in a future podcast about the anatomy of the bird respiratory system but let's jump into the signs mark what are the classic sort of signs that we see with these birds presented with respiratory diseases you mentioned swelling around the face we've already touched on um so things like uh, nasal discharge um and so that often um, might not appear as you know clients sometimes will come in and go oh my bird is sneezing on me i can feel the droplets um they might actually visualize mucus running from those external nares but very often 
the only sign of um, a nasal discharge will be um, staining the very fine mist of sneeze that birds might do when no one's around will moisten and make the feathers around the nares very sticky and they will pick up dirt so it's always important on that physical exam to look at the condition of the feathers around the nares um, and the only clue that there might be some discharge might be dirt on those feathers um, and right. as we said swelling um, you the because those bones that house the sinuses the in some locations they're very thin and so uh, if there is some abscessation or uh, build up in one of those uh, sinuses uh, maybe a tumor um, then there can be significant deformation of the shape of the face um, uh, the shape of the nares the shape of the beak um, and so the only sign of uh, that sort of disease may sometimes be an absence of symmetry or uh, altered shape. We did talk about the eye and similarly shape and size, but also um, discharge from the eyes. Um, there is direct connection between the the uh, nares and the eye, and so sometimes that may be the location that uh, uh, exudate flows. Um, some birds will show no other sign of respiratory disease than just exercise intolerance. So they may limit their, their exercise. They may, in particular, may give up flying. So uh, it takes considerable uh, oxygen and, and respiratory effort to fly. And so birds that are beginning to have uh, respiratory compromise might, um, might just develop exercise intolerance. One of the common ones that um, I talk to many other veterinarians about is the tail bob, that because birds have to, because they have no diaphragm, they have to make uh, an whole of body movement to affect a ventilatory excursion. And the harder they have to make that effort. So if there's, say, some obstruction or they really are trying to... Um, to make a significant additional effort to ventilate, um, then they will make a little flex about the hips. And if you watch the bird's tail, it will bob. But the thing I always say to, to uh, veterinarians when I talk about a tail bob is that it's an, ex it's an excellent indication that there's a significant increase in respiratory effort. But it's often at, at a later stage. If the bird is making... A, um, a significant tail bob, then respiratory disease is significant. And the other thing is that it's not a uh, an absolute. Uh, it's not absolutely only associated with um, respiratory disease. And so, many birds that have abdominal pain for other reasons might be guarding their abdomen in such a way that they don't want to squeeze the coelom in making an, a respiratory effort. Um, and so they may well then flex those muscles around the caudal abdomen and pelvis um, to affect that respiratory effort with lessening the pressure on the abdominal organs otherwise. So it's not exclusively um, an indication of a respiratory disease, but uh, it's a sign of serious derangement and uh, often respiratory disease, and it needs to be investigated. Yes, so a bit of a challenge there, Mark, and not forgetting that we're often dealing with a species that may be trying to hide illness as well. So um, 
when they do show signs of that respiratory distress. We may have a pretty sick bird on our hands, mightn't we? So let's jump into the actual examination of that animal there, Mark, and, and I suppose the direct comment that would lead on from that is um, keep the animal alive. <laughs> keep the animal alive. This is true. Um, and the, uh, the there was one other quick thing I was going to mention um, that leads on to the first stages of workup, and that's uh, noise, respiratory noise. Um, and before anyone puts a bird into their hand to perform a more detailed exam with a stethoscope, um, certainly whack your ear up to the edge of the, the cage without trying to scare the bird, but um, in a quiet room and, and have a detailed listen because... Um, uh, it's not normal to have any respiratory noise with a bird and many of those respiratory noises can give you clues um, that something significant is going on. Yes, so good point. So once you get to that point, you, you're exactly right, Brendan. You, you want to do a physical exam, but don't just automatically grab the bird. You may need to let it settle down after a consult. You may need to admit it to hospital. You may even need um, to... Uh, put the bird into an oxygen-rich environment um, to enable uh, that further examination. You have to keep in mind that many of these birds, as you said, demonstrating their preservation reflex, have serious illness and um, a bit of careless physical examination um, might be enough just to push them over the edge and then um, you've got, uh, well maybe very serious consequences so so yes i would be suggesting that it's a good thing to um be cautious at least let the bird relax before doing a physical exam uh in hand and if uh if there's any uh, more worrying circumstance then definitely uh, give the bird a bit of time in an oxygen rich environment before handling them and whacking the stethoscope on them Whacking the stethoscope on them. Uh, what can you hear, or what? Do you, what do you want to hear and not want to hear? Well, I think the and how do you do yeah, it? <laughs> yeah. The critical thing to mention here is um, to to do it because it is a little bit daunting to um, to take a stethoscope with a head that might be as big as the bird um, and to to. Uh, place it in such a way that you get uh, confident and useful information. But it is worth doing, Brendan. And even if um, you, uh, you feel like you're getting only limited information, um, it's definitely worth doing. I have found uh, the first thing that uh, made a big difference to me was making sure that I had the smallest possible stethoscope head, the pediatric um, yes. type heads, which allowed me to um, uh, listen to the frequencies of heart and noise and respiratory noise much more effectively than, than if I was using the big one. I often don't get an absolute, you know, I'm not getting the whole head of the stethoscope, the whole diaphragm of the stethoscope in unique contact with the, with the bird. Um, so it may only be a third of the pediatric stethoscope uh, diaphragm and um, and I'm always conscious of that um, the 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 uh, sternum and the overlying pectoral muscles those dense bits of tissue and bone the muscle and bone 
um, they can make it a little bit uh, difficult to appreciate the lungs underneath. So I'm always trying to slide the stethoscope up under the wing onto yeah. the, the part of the thorax that has a, a, um, a ser the series of ribs that run between the sternum and the spine. And of course, then I do make sure that uh, I slide the stethoscope down to the lateral and ventral aspects of the abdomen because that's where the air sacs are. And oftentimes, so what do we what do we hear or not hear, Mark? What's it um, compared, say, with a mammal? So what what's your tips? What, yeah. what and and can we narrow things down um, as far as severity, etc.? Definitely, the, in in our healthy birds, you should. Um, in most circumstances with a humanized bird probably hear nothing but the heart sounds um, and if you've got a bird that's uh, that's um, it has respiratory disease then you definitely can hear um, gurgles and and uh, the sort of fluid noises that might be associated with um, a, a buildup of fluid in the airways um, but more often I'm hearing uh, an absence of noise um, and that's why it's good to get some experience doing this because to know what's normal um, will give you a clue that those certain air sacs um, uh, not having any whooshing noises not having um, any airway noise at all the very gentle airway noise that, that happens at all um, that may be a, a clue that something's going on and often you can appreciate the the um, the sound of the heart um, the that as it passes through a consolidated air sac, an air sac that's not uh, filling up with air. The noise from the heart may be different. So all I'm trying to do in those circumstances is maybe appreciate that it's air sac disease. It's uh, more forward in the lungs and possibly lung disease. And just make an assessment about the um, whether there's gurgles or um, uh, um, more tissue sounds rather than the very slight um, movement of air through those areas. Yes. And then what do we do, Mark? Well, once we've got to that stage um, and we've got a bit of an idea of uh, maybe we're looking at lung disease or maybe we're looking at airway disease, maybe we're looking at... Uh, um, upper airway disease, the trachea and the um, those structures, the syrinx and glottis, um, then I'm very always very keen to um, get a radiograph. Um, after a careful CPE, um, uh, my next step generally um, is to get a series of radiographs. Generally, uh, because the birds are in respiratory compromise, um, they are quick anesthetic knockdowns and uh, and you know we have a series of th three formal views we want to get very quickly it is very good that in most instances we can get a uh, whole of bird radiographs but sometimes it's worth um, uh, paying particular attention to get factors that might highlight the lungs or um, might highlight those air sacs with a little bit more detail if I've got a bird that um, is stable um, then, and I've got uh, um, uh, good survey radiographs, um, then very regularly I'm, I take advantage of um, a little bit of contrast medium. Now, I, I administer that to the crop and I give it an hour or so to percolate through the digestive tract. And the big advantage of that 
is just identifying the soft tissue in the abdomen. So um, there have been times where I've looked at survey radiographs and I've gone, oh my goodness, that looks like a big soft tissue mass in the cranial abdomen. Um, and it's just a very moderately dilated uh, uh, ventriculus and proventriculus. And identifying that with, um, with some um, contrast medium can be a very helpful aid to um to recognizing which organs are which in the bird's uh, uh coelom great points mark great points and assuming it's still alive <laughs> mark um after we've done all that and we it might be um performed over a period of time that in in between we're putting it back in a hospital oxygen tent etc um i think the other thing you um would consider also is is sucking some blood would you not um what do we what what are the main parameters you'd be looking at there well you do you you the first thing i'm looking for uh without trying to give away too much of our subsequent uh episode is that um there are a number of respiratory diseases that will uh bump the white cell count up significantly those uh a number of the OCs that regularly occur in birds um, will give us precipitously high white cell count. So the first thing I'm looking for is to get a blood smear and, and uh, get an estimated white cell count. And as well, um, I, if I've got that drop of blood, I've done a blood smear, then um, a PCV to just confirm that we're not anemic and that our respiratory effort is not the result of a failure to be able to carry the oxygen through the blood because there's just not enough of it. So um, there's a couple of simple things that can be done with just a very small sample. Um, but of course, once we have that information, it's always useful to have a little bit of information about um, the status of the reproductive tract, the status of liver function. Um, and so a complete blood count is always useful. It is a little bit of a battle to, to uh, know which step to take, whether to get the blood or whether to consider sticking a, um, an endoscope into the bird. Sticking an endoscope in because of that complex respiratory anatomy and the, the presence of the air sacs. If there's something that might be easier to diagnose with a visual appreciation or even sample collection from within the air sacs, um, uh, it might be that might be a step that we do before we draw the blood, um, but yeah. Um, but yeah, um, even in the simplest instance, you can get useful information from uh, a blood smear and a white a, an estimated white cell count. Excellent. Well, I think we might just about stop here, Mark, for this episode. You like the forty uh, minute I mark, don't you, Brendan? Yes, I was going to jump into, I, I think the next step would be we, when we'll take take it up directly next week, Mark, um, supportive care while we're, while we're trying to decide what to do with these and then, um, then we'll talk about uh, the diseases themselves, Mark, um, and the treatment aspects based on what disease we've, we've um, narrowed it down to um, and then we'll jump into the prevention. So it's still a lot to cover there, Mark. Um, any final comments about the anatomy, uh, the clinical signs and the initial sort of workup and, and um, supportive care? No, just that I'm looking forward to the next podcast already, Brendan. Me too. And I think with that, we'll... 
out of here as usual, and Mr. Outro is here. Talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.